My name's Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Happy New Year, everybody. It's 2020. Oh, my goodness. Um, our last episode came out at the stroke of midnight on the first second of 2020, hopefully. We hope you enjoyed that episode. It was just something we wanted to knock out really quickly. We didn't want to work too hard over our holiday break, um, but we did want to uh, just give a lot of shout outs and thanks to you and everyone who has helped to make this podcast so much fun to do. It's a ton of work, uh, but as long as it keeps being this rewarding, I think we're in it for the long haul. Yeah, so. and I think that maybe the bar could get higher, but this is fine. Yeah, yeah. hey, we'll take it. Uh, but we have a ton of awesome comics to be talking about uh, this week. Uh, everything is cover dated October 1964. Um, so we've got stuff in here like uh, the debut of The Purple Man, and we've got the very first Spider-Man annual featuring The Sinister Six. Uh, we have uh, the first, and for a while, the last appearance of Wonder Man uh, <laughs> in The Avengers. So there's just a ton of really good, cool stuff to be talking about. Did you enjoy this month's I did. crop I, of stuff? It was hard to decide what was going to be relegated to, uh, you know, Marvel by the minute. Yeah, uh, yeah. It There were some hard cuts to be made. Yep. Uh, and that's, man, those cuts are just going to get harder as we keep doing I know, this. <laughs> I, know. I think we picked uh, the three issues that we're going to be talking about in depth. Um, I think we picked really good ones. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about all three of those. And I'm excited to have you fumble your way through the other seven yep. as usual. So. As usual. <laughs> uh, well, let's uh, go ahead and get things started as we always do with a little bit of historical context. All the issues that we are talking about today are cover dated October 1964. That means that they were hitting newsstands in August of 1964. Uh, here are a few of the biggest news stories from August 1964. Um, so on the 2nd of August, uh, the first Gulf of Tonkin incident took place when the destroyer USS Maddox engaged three North Vietnamese Navy torpedo boats while performing a signals intelligence patrol. The three North Vietnamese boats fired their torpedoes first, which the Maddox evaded before exchanging gunfire. Uh, four U.S. Navy Crusader jet fighter bombers strafed the torpedo boats. One American aircraft and four North Vietnamese torpedo boats were damaged, and four North Vietnamese sailors were killed and six wounded. So uh, Vietnam conflict is heating up for sure, mm-hmm. um, but it gets hotter um, <laughs> because <laughs> just two days later, uh, commanders of two U.S. Navy destroyers reported being victims of a second incident in the gulf of tonkin and it probably never actually occurred yeah i remember something about this now yeah so there were two uh yeah two destroyers uh the uss c turner joy and the uss maddox uh, again uh, they reported that they were being attacked by north vietnamese gunboats um based on this president lyndon johnson authorized a retaliatory airstrike from the carrier uss ticonderoga and he delivered a late-night televised address calling Congress to action. Uh, so three days later, 
Congress overwhelmingly authorized American use of force, and that basically had us off to the races in Vietnam. Uh, Nearly 40 years later, declassified information would show that the president was skeptical about whether the second attack actually ever occurred. There was an NSA historian uh, who concluded that uh, Hanoi's Navy was engaged in nothing that night but the salvage of two of the boats that were damaged on the 2nd of August in the first incident. The overall consensus is that there was no attack on the American ships on August 4th, uh, but President Johnson believed that there had been attack when he ordered the retaliation. So the first attack did happen. The second attack didn't happen, but the second attack was the pretext For For President Johnson to ask Congress for uh, war powers, um, and that is basically, I mean, we were probably going to be escalating no matter what, but it's just like, it's just insult to injury that the thing that actually triggered it was false. Um, Well, in civil rights news, uh, on the 4th of August, the bodies of murdered civil rights workers Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Cheney were found at the site of an earthen dam on a farm near philadelphia mississippi where they had disappeared on june 21st acting on a tip from an informer who was motivated by a thirty thousand dollar reward fbi agents obtained a warrant to search the old jolly farm and discovered the bodies hours later yeah that's just the ironic name yeah no it uh and so we had talked about this uh, a couple episodes ago on the podcast where you know these civil rights workers had gone missing you know, this is when they were found. Uh, this made headlines coast to coast. Uh, it, it was such a symbol of the darkest parts of the civil rights uh, movement, um, you know, of the the retribution that was, you know, in store for anyone black or white who went uh, to Mississippi or any other deep south state to try to, you know, make things better. Yeah. Um, there were people there who did not want, they thought things were fine just the way they were um, and were not interested in right. being told otherwise. And were definitely willing to murder to uh, keep things the way they were. Yeah. Yeah. We're not even out of the first week of August at yeah. this point, folks. Like <laughs> it, it, August came in pretty rough. Um, and so, uh, on the 5th of August, so this was the day after the false Gulf of Tonkin right. uh, incident, the United States bombed North Vietnam for the first time as it launched Operation Pierce Arrow from the aircraft carriers USS Ticonderoga and the USS Constellation against North Vietnamese PT boat bases and coastal installations. Um, so this wound up retroactively marking the start of what we now call the Vietnam era, so my dad is considered a Vietnam era veteran. Mm-hmm. He, he never went to Vietnam, but he was serving the last three weeks of his tour of duty were retroactively the first three weeks of Vietnam. So he has <laughs> veteran status. He was in Germany at the time. Right. But so that's that's what this means, basically. Yeah. OK. Um, and then, you know, as we mentioned previously, Congress would approve the Gulf of Tonkin resolution two days later. That authorized the president to take all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to assist any member of the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. It fell short of a declaration of war, but, you know, as we know, that didn't actually stop an actual war from right. breaking out. And <laughs> Was lasting... it called a police action or something? I mean, if you've got people with guns shooting at other people with guns and, you know, civilians being caught in the middle, like, does it matter if it's actually a war or not? Right. Like. Like, Not really. That distinction doesn't stop bombers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you have any good news for us? Uh, I, 
I guess it depends on what you like in Walt Disney films. Oh, okay. Um, on the 27th, Walt Disney's hit film Mary Poppins, starring Julie Andrews in the title role and Dick Van Dyke, made its first appearance with a premiere at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, California. Uh, the film would go on to become Disney's biggest moneymaker and would win five Academy Awards, including an Academy Award for Best Actress for Andrews. Yeah. Okay. It's definitely. I mean, anything was going to be better than everything else we just talked about. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> at least, you know, the month ended on that note. Um, and I don't dislike Mary Poppins. It sounded like I did, but it... <laughs> I like Dick Van Dyke's accent in it. It's the best, worst British accent of all time. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. I also have a bonus uh, historical context. So uh, on the 20th of uh, August, 1964, my mom turned 18 um and that meant so she was uh, she grew up in norwich new york um and when she turned 18 that meant that she was of legal age to purchase and consume alcohol but she could not vote ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the other way around huh yeah yep huh. so uh so that's what i got uh you got any beatles news for us I, this month i do i, I thought you a might ton. Um, so on the 11th, uh, the Beatles first film, a hard day's night was released in the United States and Canada by United artists in 700 movie theaters. Uh, on the 22nd, the Beatles appeared in Canada for the first time performing in Vancouver at empire stadium on the 23rd, the Beatles performed at the Hollywood bowl in Los Angeles, California. One of the two concerts that were compiled as the live album, the Beatles at the Hollywood bowl. Oh uh, Yeah. On the uh, 28th, the Beatles performed the first two weekend stadium concerts at Forest Hills, New York. Outside of New York City, all 15,983 tickets were sold out. Right there, and right in Spider-Man Stomping Grounds. <laughs> right there. Forest Hills. Yeah, that's, I always, I'm used to thinking of it as just Queens, but it's very specific. Yeah. Um, during this tour uh, stop in uh, Forest Hills, Bob Dylan introduced the Beatles to marijuana. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the first meeting between the legendary artists took place at the Delmonico Hotel in New York City. It's like shortly after this that Dylan goes electric, right? And then the Beatles start moving toward the Sgt. Pepper's route. Yeah, so they get really a little, psychedelic. A little and... cross-pollination there. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, certainly there is with the Beach Boys as well, but it's like that's a whole other thing. Right, yeah. yeah they were mostly on legal speed i don't know yeah, like and brian wilson is on whatever is in his brain <laughs> that guy that guy's amazing um that's a heck of a month uh i imagine the folks who were living through august uh, 1964 were probably looking for a little bit of escapism so uh let's take a little break uh and when we come back we'll start talking about uh the comics they could have been reading at this time uh to help them take their minds off of all the crazy stuff going on in the world. <laughs> hey, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. It's time for Marvel by the Minute. Marvel put out way too many issues every single month for us to be able to cover all of them in detail. So we're going to take a look at three of them in depth a little later on the podcast. Everything else goes into this segment. Uh, which makes for either very good or very bad radio or good, bad radio. Um, and, uh, it's a thing. Yeah, we're fond of it, so uh, we're going to keep it. So the first issue we're going to be taking a look at is Journey into Mystery uh, number 109. Uh, the title of the main story is When Magneto Strikes, which was written by Stan Lee, with art by Jack Kirby, inked by Chick Stone. It's the first uh, meeting of Thor and Magneto. 
Uh, and then there is a backup Tales from Asgard story uh, entitled Banished from Asgard, which is written by Stan Lee with art by Jack Kirby, inked by Vince Coletta. Are you ready, Rob? Whatever. All right. We have 60 seconds cry. on the clock and go. All right. So we start with Thor at the World's Fair looking at a sculpture of himself. That is cool. Uh, then we... Uh, <laughs> He, we see other sculptures of all the other heroes. It's a good way to introduce things. Then we see this bizarre underwater submarine that has like a driftwood tree thing growing out <laughs> on the top of it, which is Magneto's um, cool underwater lair. Um, he's got the whole uh, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants with him. He sends them off. I can't remember why. And then he uh, proceeds to turn on a giant magnet and fart around with much of the things of metal in New York City. Um <laughs> Thor eventually cottons onto it. They get in a fight. Uh, it proves some uh, both Thor's strength and Magneto's strength. Uh, then, of course, uh, Thor gets separated from his hammer. He gets stuck in a bunch of traps where lame Dr. Blake should have certainly died but didn't. Uh, he gets back to his cane. He fights Magneto. We get to Tales of Asgard. Uh, Thor gets banished, and then he lures some mountain giants into a, cave, a cavern, a canyon. Nice. <laughs> that works out, man. Uh, I think my one of my favorite bits of uh, of this was um, that although the X Men sort of appear in the main story, uh, they're always kind of off they're camera. They're off camera. Yeah, yeah. It, they, they, they think Cyclops' beam comes into one shot, but yeah. you never see him. It's like they had to pay appearance fees for all the heroes <laughs> yeah. who showed up, and they're like, "No, no, no, we can't afford the X Men and Thor this week." Kirby's like, "Don't make me draw them too in here." <laughs> Okay, uh, let's move on to Sergeant Fury number 11, The Crackdown of Captain Flint, written by Stan Lee with art by Dick Ayers, uh, inked by George Bell. Uh, the Howling Commandos get a new temporary commanding officer, the extremely by-the-book Captain Flint. Yeah, that really sums most of this up. Okay, 60 seconds on the clock. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, give it a shot. So Captain Flint takes over for Happy Tom Sawyer because he's... Uh, I don't know if his name's Tom Sawyer now, uh, but he, uh, Sam Sawyer, he's off doing some, some other mission. Uh, this Captain Flint is so by the book, like all of the, the, this is the first time we ever see all of the commandos, uh, in their actual uniforms. Yes. Um, like cut, polished. Yeah, yeah. And shaved, uh, Sergeant Fury. Uh, they go on a mission together and Flint wants to lead them. Um, but he wants to do everything by the book. So he's trying to do this um, really obvious thing. He's not thinking like a commando. He's thinking like a military trained officer. Right. And they're, they keep going, dude, you're going to get us all killed. Uh, and his insignia is like polished and shining yeah, and giving them away. Yeah, they keep talking about how the snipers and the other, they're going to see his insignia. So they uh, eventually he gets hurt and uh, knocked down and he's knocked out so they can take over and save the day without him meddling. <laughs> And he loves it and turns into a grimy soldier. Yeah, he's unshaven, he's his collars unbuttoned, and he's uh, he's doing his best Nick Fury impression. Yeah, which he's is pretty got rad. a cigar. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, Fantastic Four number 31. So uh, this story is called The Mad Menace of the Macabre Mole Man, written by Stan Lee with art by Jack Kirby, inked by Chick Stone. Uh, it's the third appearance of the Mole Man, uh, who just never quite learns um, and winds up being defeated regularly in very similar ways. It also has uh, a mysterious figure who winds up being uh, 
revealed by the end of the story i really can't remember anything from this i'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm also well, like just scanning through it and it's like yeah almost unintelligible yes. awesomeness but yeah uh you got 60 seconds on the clock and go okay so mole man is pulling down cities underground he's sending the the he's actually telling the humans they're going to be okay um <laughs> he then uh gets a hold of sue storm um I can't remember exactly how or why, uh, which is cool. And there's lots of great art in this, by the way. Uh, really cool stuff. Just stalling. Um, then uh, we also see a guest appearance by the Avengers because when, you know, whole chunks of cities are getting going missing, everyone gets involved. Uh, they uh, fumble into each other, as usually happens. <laughs> um, then Reed starts to come up with a plan, calms everybody down, and starts to save the day with some weird helmet and some kind of weed eater. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know what that thing is now. Uh, <laughs> this is me really trying to describe just what I'm looking at. We find out, though, Sue Storm's dad has been released from prison. Yes. And he is going to save the day by... That's all. Performing, all a, performing an operation on her to save her life. And Johnny thought he was dead. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was the mysterious reveal. There really uh, were a lot of cool panels in there. I just can't remember. There what. absolutely is. Like Kirby went all out here. Uh, I think it's all downhill from here. Yeah. Uh, I am going to go ahead and I'm going to do this next one Whoa, uh, myself. Uh, and it, it's going to be uh, I'm, what I'm going to wind up talking about is not much of the issue um well but played mostly uh the people behind it so um this next issue is uh, tales of suspense number 58 in mortal combat with captain america uh which is written by stan lee with art by don heck uh inked by dick Ayers. it's iron man and captain america versus craven and the chameleon um and then uh, this is the last issue where the watcher is going to be the backup feature after this captain america is going to wind up being the second feature uh in tales of suspense um but this is the last watcher story we're going to get um it's called the watcher must die uh it's written by larry lieber uh, with plotting by stan lee um and art by george tuska and uh i will just get into that once we get going okay. so i'm going to put 60 seconds on the clock I'm going to see if I can do this. I've never tried doing this before. Yeah, good All luck, right. man. Hey, thanks. <laughs> okay, so uh, the uh, first story uh, is Iron Man and Captain America uh, versus Craven and the Chameleon. Um, from what I remember, uh, Craven immediately gets captured um, uh, by Iron Man. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he, uh, uh, he, he gets uh, captured and deported. Um, which leads the chameleon to disguise himself as uh, Captain America, um, and he gets into uh, he gets Cap and uh, Iron Man to fight each other in a preview of Civil War fifty years later. Yes, um, and then uh, Giant Man of all people is the one who reveals that uh, the chameleon was impersonating Captain America. So that's resolved. Uh, then we go to Watcher Must Die. Uh, it's just another one of these stories where the Watcher doesn't watch, doesn't watch, but then he interferes. Uh, but George Tuska uh, was the artist here. Uh, he was a silver. It, this is the first time he did silver age art. He illustrated golden age crime, adventure, military horror, and Western comics for a number of publishers. Uh <laughs> including timely comics um he would wind up uh being the regular artist on iron man uh for years uh and then he also had a lot of runs on uh, ghost rider and submariner and x-men and luke cage uh so i'm excited that he is now uh part of the mighty marvel bullpen 
And I apologize for the, uh, I don't really, I, <laughs> I really, it was just the first time I got to I know. Uh, be in charge of the bell. It's so pretty good, right? I just did it real early It's to it's, make you suffer. It's easy to let that kind of power go to your head. Um, <laughs> I do respect you for not dinging that all the time. <laughs> it's so much fun. <laughs> okay. Uh, we've only got three more of these to go. Do you think you're ready for another one? I think I am. Okay. Uh, Tales to Astonish, number 60. The story's called The Beasts of Berlin. It's written by Stan Lee, art by Dick Ayers, uh, inked by Paul Reinman. Uh, it's basically Giant Man versus Kami Gorillas. And then uh, for the first time, uh, the Hulk has the backup story in Tales to Astonish and will continue to have it going forward. Um, and that story is just called The Incredible Hulk. Um, <laughs> it's written by Stan Lee. The art is by Steve Ditko, inked by George Bell. And uh, it's Hulk versus a robot. Yep. Uh, you got 60 seconds. Go for it. This gives me a little bit more time to talk about what a jerk Hank Pym is at the starting of Tales oh to my. Astonish. It's, he's, he's... His fan club is there, and he's being a total butthole to yeah. everybody. He's made the, wa- the wasp cry. Uh, <sighs> she is so disappointed in how he's behaving, even though he has a okay reason. Right. Um, which is someone he knows has been captured behind... Uh, the Iron Curtain, right. and uh, and labeled as a spy and is about to be executed. So he decides to go off by himself and uh, get them <laughs> out of there. And he and, won't take her because he tells her the story of how his ex-wife was murdered. There. Right, he yeah. revisits that whole thing just yeah. to make her cry more. Right, uh, right. And yeah. then uh, he fights a bunch of, yeah, commie gorillas um, that are supposed to, I think most of them are hyper-intelligent. I think He does so. some fairly strong things. Yeah. We get to the Hulk story. Um, this is, uh, another incident where Hulk is triggered. He realizes he's triggered by emotion and he fights a robot. Yep. That's it. A robot that he can't beat. I know. Yeah. That, that banner made. Yeah. So it's almost like the Hulk buster, you know, it's like, uh, yep. um, and some guy, this is one thing about it. I need to say this guy, uh, I don't know. Remember if it's like a commie agent or somebody probably who climbs into the robot, he gets in and, uh, somehow, he gets sealed inside. He says the force of the explosion somehow fused the hatch door shut. I can't get out. I'm trapped in here. And then the next thought he has is, but why should I care? I have all the room I need inside here. The robot <laughs> can get me food, water, whatever I need. And as long as I remain inside, nothing can harm me. The world will be mine. <laughs> I was like, how, dude, are you just going to fill the legs up with pee? Yep. What's going on? That's a guy who has been living in the Soviet Union for too long. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is bigger than my apartment. <laughs> that just struck me as hilarious, but I, it did make me remember the story more. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, there's still more, aren't there? Oh. Just two. Okay. Um, and then, uh, so next one is Amazing Spider-Man number 17. And this one I think we probably would have done a deeper dive on um, if we weren't already covering a big Spider-Man story this month. But this story is called The Return of the Green Goblin. Uh, it's written by Stan Lee with art by Steve Ditko. Um, Spidey takes on the Green Goblin, um, and with a guest star appearance by the Human Torch. Yeah, I do. I kind of remember this one now. Okay, great. Uh, so I'm, that's what we call confidence. I'm where I come you. from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, sixty seconds. Give it a shot. Okay, so everything that possibly ever happens to Peter Parker happens in this one story. He gets uh, uh, Liz is trying to get him um to be part of a fan club that flash is starting for spider-man 
he has to show up somewhere as Spider-Man, but also Peter Parker's been invited and he's ditched out on Betty Brant because he can't go with her because he's got to show up as Spider-Man. But then he tries to make a guest appearance as Peter Parker, like get out of his Spider-Man costume in the middle of a fight with the Green Goblin. Yep. Uh, and it shows up all disheveled and then Liz touching his hair and Betty gets upset. And then he hears a phone call that his aunt is in the hospital again and has to run out in the middle of the fight. Also, Johnny Storm is there. Yeah. He and Johnny Storm. So he uh, gets in the middle of some things like right when uh, Pete or Spider-Man's about to get the Green Goblin, like shoot a big web at him, Human Torch flies in yep. the middle because some guys are robbing something also. So everything happens at once. That's pretty much it, yeah. Of course, uh, everyone thinks that Spider-Man's a coward because he turns tail and runs, but even by the end of the story, you know, Johnny Storm is like, I'm sure Spidey had a good reason for doing what he did. Like, there's a, you know, a, a dawning respect there yeah. between these two. And J. Jonah Jameson is beside himself yeah, he's so yes. happy <laughs> also the glider the goblin has the green goblin has his glider not his broomstick now. yes yep. they don't even really go into it much he's no just, but he, he he has a bag of tricks this time too yeah, he's got like of, he's got like, like an exploding frog he's got his pumpkin bombs he's got like a little ghost thing yeah uh okay last one man uh strange okay. tales 125 uh, two stories in here. The Submariner Must Be Stopped, uh, which is written by Stan Lee with art by Dick Ayers, inked by Paul Reinman. It's the Human Torch and The Thing, which is now, going forward, the starring duo of the main story in Strange Tales, uh, taking on The Submariner. Um, and then the backup story is the Doctor Strange story called Mordo Must Not Catch Me, <laughs> written by Stan Lee with art by Steve Ditko, inked by George Bell. Uh, it's Doctor Strange versus... Of course, Baron Mordo. Uh, <laughs> Who else? 60 seconds on the clock. Go for it. Okay, so we get a classic uh, Johnny and Ben hanging out. They get word that uh, Namor is somewhere and decide that they're going to go take him down because they're the boys. <laughs> and uh, He hasn't done anything <laughs> wrong. No. He's, he's broken no laws. They assume that he has an army of Atlanteans and he's going to come terrorize New York. So they go and start a fight with him and they get... <laughs> pretty beat up they do uh, yeah. yeah they only almost get away because uh he uses his electric namor uses his electric eel thing and shocks them and sort of wears himself down then it turns out that reed was actually inviting namor to try to make a peace to forge peace with him and johnny and ben just ruined the whole thing so yep. ben's dumber by hanging out with johnny this much nice job guys uh so dr strange um the ancient one has gone missing uh, of course, it's Mordo. Uh, Doctor Strange has to defeat M Mordo, so he does it with the light of his amulet, gets him to uh, relent. Nicely done. Whew. Way to end strong. That's the bulk of what Marvel put out this month. Um, I think some of the real highlights uh, from those issues, um, I thought uh, the Fantastic Four story was pretty strong. Um, I thought the uh, Captain America and Iron, Iron Man, Man yeah. story was really good. Um, and uh, I thought uh, the Spider-Man story was just excellent. Uh, you know, Return of the Green Goblin. Um, like you said, it's literally everything that Peter Parker ever has to deal with. 
um, they just keep piling on and piling on and piling <laughs> so, on. Um, like you thought just his aunt in the hospital was bad. Well, we're just throwing that one in as a cherry on top. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's like Spidey, you've had it too good for too long. Um, <laughs> and then they're just, they just hint at the end that they're going to keep making his life more miserable. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the first of the three issues that we're going to take a deep dive on here on Marvel by the month. <laughs> to Marvel by the Month. It's time to get into it. Um, the first issue we're going to be talking about in depth uh, this week is Daredevil number four. Um, the story is called Kilgrave, the Unbelievable Purple Man. Uh, it's written by Stan Lee with art by Joe Orlando, inked by Vince Coletta. Um, this is the first appearance of the Purple Man. And it's really kind of a funny name for the story because the one thing that the Purple Man is, is totally believable. Like that's his superpower. You cannot not believe the purple man or, or do what he tells you to right. do. You are compelled. Yeah. If you saw the first season of Netflix's uh, Jessica Jones, you probably already know uh, who Kilgrave, the purple man is. He Although was, not purple. Right. He's in the show. He's not purple. I think he wears like a purple tie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's, there's notes, but right. his skin isn't purple. No, yeah. but this is a literal purple man in the Netflix version. Uh, David Tennant played him as just an absolutely horrifying creep. Um, and that version of the character was based off of Brian Michael Bendis's alias, where he first created and introduced uh, Jessica Jones as a character. As good as I thought David Tennant's performance was, if you're being honest, like Bendis did a lot of the heavy lifting for him. Yes. <laughs> like he made him just this monster. Yeah, um, a, a weirdly well-rounded monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, even if you go back to his very first appearance in this issue that we're about to talk about, um, there's hints of that absolute monster that Kilgrave winds up becoming, especially uh, as you'll see in this issue as we go through it and his interactions with Karen Page, where he's just a total creep. Um, yeah, let's dive in. Yeah, let's, let's get do, it. do it. So the story begins with Kilgrave, who is literally a purple man, as yep. we've said, wears a purple suit, skin's purple, hair's purpler. <laughs> Stan Goldberg had the week <laughs> off. <laughs> Walking up to, uh, he walks up to a bank teller and asks him to fill a case with $100 bills, which the teller does. Kilgrave is completely relaxed and at ease. And they go, Stan goes to great lengths to emphasize how relaxed and patient he is. Yeah. Uh, it, he repeatedly mentions, like, he seems to not care. He's so nonchalant. Uh, after Kilgrave leaves the bank, the teller realizes what he's done and calls the police, who catch Kilgrave easily. He's not even trying to flee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so right there, I mean, I, I think if you know nothing about this character coming in, like this is pretty compelling right here. It's like, okay, the teller just did exactly what he told him to do. And he does not seem to be in any hurry. He's not worried about getting caught. What is this guy's deal? This is, right. this is interesting. Right. A normal, a normal tactic in these kinds of stories would be he's trying to get captured right. or taken to jail for right. some reason. But the way the thing went down with the teller is already weird. It's a new odd twist. Yeah. Plus he's purple. Yeah. This purple thing. And not to be racist, but that's weird. <laughs> Kilgrave is picked up by the cops. Um, he's taken into custody. The judge winds up assigning Matt Murdock to uh, him as his lawyer. Um, so Matt and Karen Page wind up going to the jail where Kilgrave's being held. Uh, Kilgrave immediately zeroes in on Karen. He's very interested in her, and Matt hears Kilgrave's pulse start to race, uh, so he knows he knows what's up. Kilgrave tells the guards to release him, which they do. He then tells Karen to accompany him as his secretary, which she does, and it turns out Matt Murdock seems to be the only person 
who's immune to this weird power of persuasion that Kilgrave has. It's unsettling, honestly. Yeah, yeah. The, and his blasé lack of concern with how anyone might perceive or that anyone could possibly resist him is scary. Yeah. Uh, so Matt changes into Daredevil and goes after Kilgrave. Uh, when Kilgrave realizes he can't influence Daredevil, he orders the crowd to attack him. Daredevil barely gets away from them and decides he needs to lose the hood on his costume. <laughs> yeah. That's where he was tucking like his street clothes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's funny because like he has this like extended internal monologue about like I really need to get rid of this hood on my costume. It's like my uh, it's like I can't just keep my clothes in there. It's like I they could get torn off and then it would make it really easy for someone to discover my secret identity. <laughs> and it feels like though they went into great lengths to add the hood right. like in the second issue. Yeah. Where like now I've got this hood to stash my street clothes. And so this <laughs> just like undo, undo. Yeah. Uh, this is a guy who, you know, he's just seen his his secretary kidnapped he's found this guy who can like control people like anyone's mind with just a word and he's really concerned about this hood (laughs) first and foremost so Kilgrave goes to a local gym and orders all of the local tough guys to serve him as his bodyguards these are like gymnasts and bodybuilders yep yep he then goes to the Ritz Plaza Hotel and orders the top floors to be cleared out for him and his posse immediately. Yeah, yeah. The, so first... the wealthiest people are just like, you're out now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Yep. Honestly, <laughs> that's pretty. Uh, meanwhile, as all this is going down, uh, Matt is back in his apartment um, and uh, he's adding two gimmicks uh, to his Daredevil Billy Club. Uh, the first is a miniature tape recorder, uh, which he's got hidden in the handle. And he remembers uh, from his origin story when he left the fixer uh, into saying that it's like, well, I've been recording everything in a secret recorder. And that's what causes the fixer to freak out on him. Well, this time he actually is like, actually, that was a good idea. I'm going to go forward with that. So he installs this little mini cassette recorder in his billy club. And then he also creates this chemically treated plastic sheet that rolls up inside the billy club <laughs> yeah. sort of like a like a, a, a window blind um that you just pull out and it works somehow in the comic book sure. universe but it's like matt murdoch lawyer uh, super sensitive guy yeah and also inventor and billy club it's like a billy club of holding it's like you can just put as much stuff as you yeah. want to and because it also if you remember like it doubles as his blind man cane right so he's, he's like oh, whatever you need that. it to be yeah. it's an omni gadget it's great um, so Daredevil tracks Kilgrave uh, and attacks. Uh, after beating up Kilgrave's bodyguards, Daredevil follows him and Karen up to the roof in a terrifying scene. Yeah. Kilgrave orders Karen to stand at the edge of the roof and tells Daredevil he'll make her jump if Daredevil doesn't comply. So that's also a classic hostage situation, but this is extra scary because he knows everyone is compelled to do yeah. what he says. Yeah. There's no doubt that if he tells her to jump, she's going to jump. Yeah. Yeah. So while holding Daredevil at gunpoint, Kilgrave reveals his origin as a foreign spy who was accidentally doused with a purple nerve gas that combined with his body chemistry to give him his powers. Yeah. And his purple coloration. Yeah. This is the least interesting part of the story. Like, honestly, like up until then, it was really humming along. Um he's like, and it was a foreign spy. It's like, of course you were, darling. Yes. You know, yeah. like, we don't need to know your origin even. Let's yeah. just save that one for later. Yeah. Let's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's do a doom thing and tell us your origin later. Yeah. Yeah. Just, exactly. Just be cool right now. <laughs> um, Daredevil records Kilgrave's entire story with his secret tape recorder and leaps off the roof with Karen rescuing her. And he, le- the way he leaps is 
Kilgrave does not understand either because he oh, no. just he just slams into Karen and falls off the ledge yeah, with her. He, and Kilgrave he thinks, thinks he's decided to kill himself and her. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> but uh, but then he realizes that Daredevil's landed on a, like a fire escape um, and he's gotten away. So now he's pursuing Daredevil because he can't let the confession get out. He also cannot allow the one person who's immune to his power to live. Um, so, uh, Kilgrave, uh, he goes downstairs, exits the hotel, orders the crowd outside of the hotel to find and bring him Daredevil. But Daredevil just shows right up. Like he, he's like, Oh, you don't have to come looking for me. I'm right here. He steps forward. He wraps Kilgrave in that chemically treated plastic sheet that was hidden inside of his billy club. And this somehow blocks, uh, Kilgrave's power. And, uh, so Daredevil just wraps him up for the cops and takes him away. And, and that's that, that's yeah, the that's end of the purple man. Weird ending. It's, the whole chemically treated plastic. I'm like, cool. But right. I mean, how did you get there? Like they you're didn't a lawyer, even, dude. Yeah. 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 How did you make it? How did you decide that's what, it, I mean, possibly in the director's cut, there's a uh, 10 pages of Matt Murdoch saying his olfactory senses can tell that this is a chemically pheromone related power or right. something. Yeah. But there's no director's cut. Yeah. So they just did it. And, and it, and it, I mean, it, this story works just because, purple man is so terrifying yeah yeah it's like you know what <laughs> however you wound up putting him away i'm glad he is right um and he doesn't show up again for a very long time like it's it's like another five years or so before he reappears but um i actually thought this is a very good daredevil issue i thought um maybe the best one since the first one um, yeah i agree it feels very it, it's very street level like it does have a little bit of superheroing in it it has a little bit of you know superhuman ability but really it's just it's a story of like how do you deal with someone who just has this ability to convince you of anything or convince everyone in the world except you of everything you know <laughs> right um which is the hell that we find ourselves living through <laughs> in today's political climate um, but no i mean it's uh it's a it's a great villain character i'm, I'm kind of surprised it takes him so long to show back up um it's a really good story i think um because it is so street level um, and so low power, uh, it really fits Joe Orlando's art style very well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I loved this story. I thought it was, and really I love good. how it's not hypnotism too, because we've had plenty of hypnotism already. Sure. Yep. Like I mean, it might be more <laughs> believable, but it's like I I like the just the weird oddity of his power. Yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah, that's that's your uh, Daredevil number four. So we're going to take another break. When we come back, uh, we're going to introduce you to a fellow named Wonder Man. Don't get too attached. <laughs> okay, we're back here on Marvel by the Month. Uh, we're going to take you through Avengers number nine. Uh, there's one story in this issue. It's called The Coming of The Wonder Man, written by Stan Lee. Uh, art by Don Heck, taking over from Jack Kirby this month, and I believe winds up being the regular Avengers penciler for quite some time, uh, inked by Dick Ayers. So basically the plot summary of this one is the Avengers wind up facing Zemo, Enchantress, Executioner, and Wonder Man in his first appearance. Mm -hmm. When last we saw uh, Zemo and the Enchantress and the Executioner, Thor had whipped them into some sort of cosmic vortex and sent them somewhere he wasn't sure where he didn't seem super concerned uh what happened to these folks <laughs> they're uh 
They were trapped between the sixth and seventh dimension. Oh, that's, of course. It's easy to get stuck there. But probably still near our time. The Enchantress casts a spell that returns them to Earth, specifically to Zemo's South American jungle hideout, which yeah. she maybe could have done any time. I love how blasé she is about it, too. It's okay. like, oh, yes, you humans are so impatient here. It's like, boof. Like she was enjoying her time between the sixth and seventh sure, dimension. Sure, yeah. And uh, once they're back, they put together their next scheme, of course, to defeat the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, weirdly, Simon Williams. Yeah. So who? Who's Simon Williams? <laughs> well, Simon Williams, he's an entrepreneur. Uh, he was arrested for embezzling money. Um, he's being arraigned at a courthouse in New York. Um, uh, Williams blames Tony Stark for his downfall um, because Tony Stark's inventions made Williams' patents worthless. Uh, so Williams wound up stealing from his investors to avoid bankruptcy. He had like w- inferior transistors. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I love that he blames Stark for the his decision to embezzle from his investors. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, it's like this thing that I had, you made it worthless. So obviously I had to steal. <laughs> it's like, well, oh, okay. That's sort of villain logic. Yeah, I guess so. So uh, Enchantress and the Executioner in uh, civilian disguises, uh, they show up at the courthouse. They pay his bond. Uh, they agree to help him get revenge on Tony Stark because they want to get rid of his bodyguard, Iron Man. Because obviously no one knows that Stark and Iron Man are the same guy. I like the civilian disguises, though, because... <laughs> the the executioner stands out. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's got a tattooed bald head in 1964. Right, that's like a there aren't even extreme bikers that look like him <laughs> in 1964. Yeah, it's great. They take uh Williams to the Amazon jungle and use a machine on him. It's a machine of uh Zemo's design. Uh so Zemo gives him super strength and invulnerability plus a rocket belt. Uh, which is pretty sweet. Um, and what is, I'm going to say, without a doubt, the absolute worst costume in all of Marvel Comics history. Like 80 years of Marvel Comics history, this is the biggest stinker. This is really bad. I, we can go like head down. Um, so he, he's wearing this like kind of half helmet thing. It looks sort of like a green construction worker's helmet. Yeah, yeah um, that's pretty accurate. And he's got these big red sunglasses and then that goes down to a green tank top with a big red w that goes across his chest and then across his uh stomach he's got these like little swirly filigree pattern yeah it's things. not at first you might think when you hear it that it's like chain mail or nope. some kind of you know cool scales or something it's just a filigree pattern that's yeah. really not that compelling or well done. He looks like a fancy cake. Yes, he does. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then he's got like a, a red belt. Utility belt. F- full yeah. of like pouches and buckles because I guess Rob Liefeld traveled back in time to help create that part of the costume. Yeah, not the feet. Right. Because the feet are accurate. <laughs> the feet are accurate. Uh, and then, yeah, down to, you know, green trunks and tights uh, and then like red swashbuckling boots. Like it's some... like a Christmas cake. Yeah, uh, he looks like a, like a Christmas cake that got stripper. A Christmas, a Christmas cake stripper who also wrestles on the independent circuit. <laughs> there we go. That's we nailed it. it. Yeah, uh, it's a terrible, terrible costume. And I don't want to throw Don Heck under the bus, but 
this is the first issue of Avengers that Dominic drew, and this guy shows up in it. So <laughs> there are some other good panels, but just his costume is yeah. atrocious. Yeah, not not like it makes Zemo look classy. It really does. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that was his whole intention. It's like <laughs> we got to rescue Jack's design of Zemo. Uh, I'm gonna make something worse. Uh, so maybe it was he, he fell on a grenade for Jack. Possibly. Let's go with that story. Anyway, Zemo uh, orders his new Wonder Man to infiltrate the Avengers, uh, but to keep him loyal, uh, Zemo poisons Wonder Man with the same thing that gave him his powers. Uh, so if Wonder Man doesn't get an antidote from Zemo every week, his powers will kill him. So, you know, Wonder Man, he's not a great guy, but he's not the worst guy. But now it's like you either infiltrate and, and bring the Avengers down or you're going to die. Right. So, and he's he's very powerful yep. and nigh invulnerable. Yep. Uh, he, and he's a guy who, you know, as we have seen from his embezzling, uh, he doesn't have a problem taking the easy way out. Right. <laughs> so, so Zemo, Enchantress, and the Executioner stage a battle against the Avengers where Wonder Man aids the Avengers to earn their trust. So yep. this is how he's getting in. The Masters of Evil escape as Wonder Man introduces himself. Wonder Man tells the Avengers his origin, which is basically exactly what actually happened, except for the part about him colluding with Zemo to destroy him. Yeah, good good job leaving that <laughs> part out, dude. Uh, but Cap doesn't believe I, I love how skeptical Cap is right out of the gate. Uh, it's like, it's too good to be true, probably too good to be true. I'm from World War II, man. So the Enchantress casts a spell from South America to change the story, which maybe they could have just done in the first place. Maybe. Uh, Enchantress. Uh, now the <laughs> Avengers believe that Wonder Man is dying from a rare disease and they all get to work trying to cure him. Yeah. So they're all like Hank Pym's doing some biochemistry stuff. You know, uh, Tony Stark's working on some transistors. They're yeah. all going crazy. trying. Lame to Dr. Blake is looking in cells in a microscope. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so uh, so they're they're doing their best, but they're not making any progress on it. Uh, but but they're working on it, and they're telling him, "We're gonna we're gonna do everything we can," um, which is nice. It's very nice of them to help yeah. this this stranger. So how does Wonder Man repay them? Well, he takes the Wasp captive, um, and he heads to Zemo's South American and lair. I think that happens just off panel. It does. Yeah, it's I, like I kept flipping back and forth, and it's not like the old days where I'm like, are pages stuck together here? <laughs> right. No, they we we never see. It, it's only addressed kind of in a line of dialogue, and then a few panels later, you see the Wasp chained up. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it's like at no point do you see him kidnap her or see him even like telling her it's like hey i need you to join me in south america <laughs> right. uh, get into this car right whatever yeah. yeah and then he sends a distress call to the avengers he says that he and the wasp have been captured so the avengers all show up uh the masters of evil are ready for them and they defeat the avengers they ambush them they trap thor in a pit and then he turns back into lame dr blake uh, everyone else uh you know they they take out the um, end just kidding. Yeah. And then Zemo announces his intention to kill them. This is where we realize that Wonder Man, he's like, he's not the greatest guy, but he's not that bad a guy. Like, he's not he, evil scientist exactly. bad. Evil Nazi scientist bad. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and Wonder Man is like, he's totally taken by surprise by this revelation. So Wonder Man winds up turning on Zemo um, because he's got a sense of gratitude to the Avengers who did everything they could to save him. And uh, Wonder Man saves the Avengers. The Masters of Evil escape, but the Avengers' lives are saved. Uh, and Wonder Man dies as a hero uh, from Zemo's poison as the Masters of Evil are fleeing. It is a decent origin. He's like, yeah, he did some white-collar crime. Uh, but then he, when it 
push comes to shove, he sacrifices his life to save the Avengers. You know, contrary to the way the story ends, uh, it's not the last we'll see of Wonder Man, but it's the last we will see of him for a very long time. So his costume gets slightly better, slightly better. It just gets simpler. Yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, Because there's a lot going on there, man. (laughs) Too much. Well, you know how like like the fashion advice before you walk out of the house, you look at yourself in the mirror and you take one thing off. It's like (laughs) Wonder Man should have taken eight things off. Um, (laughs) He just ripped off this the sleeves over his biceps and was like, guns out (laughs) and then took off. It's like, I know our buddy Noah likes to crap on Namor for just running around a pair of swim trunks, but that is a superior costume in every way to what we're getting here. Uh, okay, well, so uh, that's the story of Wonder Man. Uh, we've got one issue left. I'm very excited to talk about it. Um, so let's take our final break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to take you through Amazing Spider-Man Annual number one here on Marvel by the Month. <laughs> Okay, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. It's time to talk through our final issue of the episode, Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1. It's really action-packed. It's got some slapstick to it, which I was kind of surprised going back and rereading it. But it features just about every Spider-Man villain and supporting character that's introduced to date, uh, as well as most of the Marvel Universe. Like, it's a big yeah. Big story. And, but I mean, featuring the Marvel Universe is like, it's very much like cameos. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. They Almost every other hero is just wedged into the story as an excuse. <laughs> like, is a, I think a purposeful wink of a ham-fisted story way of just making everyone show up. It's It gets hilarious. Like, the first one, you're like, what? That's improbable. And then the second one, you're like, okay, I see what you're doing here, Stan. And then he just keeps doing it. Yep. And, yeah. It's great. Uh, but before we get into all that, um, there are four other features uh, in this 72-page annual. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in this thing. So we have a gallery of Spider-Man's most famous foes, uh, which features full-page illustrations and bios of all 14 of Spidey's villains to date. Right, his most famous, meaning only. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it starts with the burglar who killed Uncle Ben. Which, uh, with the title, The Burglar. The Burglar, yeah. yeah. Um, as if like that's his supervillain identity. <laughs> and then uh, it goes all the way through to Craven the Hunter, which is the last one to be introduced, I think. And then we get a Secrets of Spider-Man 10-page uh, feature, which illustrates pretty much every aspect of Spidey's origin, powers, equipment abilities the whole deal there's uh, a bunch of pinups of like supporting characters um, and the kids he goes to school with other marvel heroes he's guest starred with and then it wraps up on uh what i thought was a pretty funny but also like maybe a little like uncomfortably true uh three-page story about how lee and ditko create spider-man stories and it, the story just makes it seem like they cannot stand each other. Right. And it's like, man, how true is this? <laughs> like, you guys have done a lot of work together, so I don't know. It gets into the desperation of Ditko trying to finish the pencils as he gets a call for the next idea from Stan in the middle of the night. And, yes. he's, and Stan keeps calling him to ask him why he's so late. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just, like, insulting each other's abilities. Uh, yeah, it's it's like everything in there is meant to be funny, but... Some of it is just mean. Yeah. It's really... It's like a roast. Yeah, it really is. But, I mean, Stan wrote it and Steve illustrated it. So, I mean, you got to assume they were both on board with this. So, yeah, who knows? Uh, But we're not going to focus on all that stuff. What we're going to focus on is the main story, um, which is just called The Sinister Six. 
Okay, this is written by Stan Lee with art by Steve Ditko, as we mentioned. The story in this issue is very straightforward. Uh, Dr. Octopus recruits five other supervillains who have been defeated by Spider-Man previously uh, to team up as the Sinister Six and finish him off once and for all. So what could go wrong? Yeah, and who are these Sinister Six? This is Doc Ock, the Vulture, the Sandman, Electro, Mysterio, and Kraven, the Hunter. That's a pretty stacked deck yeah sandman alone has nearly beat spider-man yeah yeah so the story itself is pretty straightforward the sinister six kidnap betty brant because they believe spider-man will try to rescue her as he has twice before Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is not the worst plan in the world right it's it's gonna work uh they also happen to accidentally kidnap aunt may as well (laughs) giving (laughs) peter a double incentive to go after them yep each member of the Sinister Six has a card that says where the next one is located. So it's like boss fights. Yeah. Um, Spidey has to defeat each of them in turn to find and rescue Betty and May, which, spoiler alert, he totally does. I think that's all really pretty much all the depth we need to go into as far as the story goes, because it's a really basic story. It really is. It's very right. slim. It's just here's the excuse to have Spidey do all this stuff and fight all these guys. And it's just one big fight after another. You don't need to overthink this stuff sometimes. Um, You know, it's like, hey, let's put half a dozen of his best villains in there. And they are some of the best villains in the Marvel Universe. Let's just let Ditko do what Ditko does. And (laughs) it works out. So going back to what you had uh, touched on earlier, uh, like Ditko and Lee, they managed to work in just about every other Marvel hero into the story. Um, and it's great because the way the format of it and as you after the first couple, you catch on to this is like uh, you see the hero. Um, there's some brief interaction and then there's a caption box that calls out the series where readers can see more of them. Right. Um, and it is literally like pretty much everyone. So uh, we start out uh, the first one we see is Thor. He nearly flies right through Spider-Man as Spidey's perched on a lamppost reading a newspaper um dr strange shows up in his astral form he spooks the hell out of flash thompson he sees the fantastic four fly past him while he's stranded on a flagpole he walks by giant man and the wasp while they're apprehending some criminals like they they just go to these ridiculous lengths to work in these cameo appearances and just it's and they do get more and more obviously shoehorned mm-hmm. uh, as you get in there like captain america answers the phone at avengers hq when j jonah jameson's trying to find spidey um the x-men see the human torch's flaming message in the sky for spider-man um so now we're just cutting away to them seeing a different thing yeah. exactly it's like not even really a part <laughs> of the story um iron man shows up just after spidey defeats electro you know after he could have actually been help right the torch actually gets like he gets a full page he gets an extended interaction with spidey um he offers to help him out um the two of them basically spend the whole page just like tussling and arguing <laughs> with each other um and the only uh major marvel heroes who don't uh wind up featured in the story or the Hulk, because at this point he doesn't have his own book, and he's also more of a villain. And then you got Daredevil, uh, and that might have just been, like, I don't know exactly when this annual story was being created, so, you know, Daredevil might not have been on the stands by that point, or they might not have been sure exactly when Daredevil was going to hit the stands, because there was a production delay there. They could have been working on this way in advance. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no reason, you know, that they couldn't have been, so... 
it's also telling whenever Kirby's not like Kirby's not drawing the Avengers. Yeah. What's Kirby doing? Right, right, right. <laughs> yep. So during each fight uh, with each of the Sinister Six, uh, Ditko does a beautiful full page illustration. So yeah. like the boss, it's not always the boss fight or the climax, but it's like usually just a huge moment of the fight and just a big action scene. And it's a whole page, which yep. is not something we've seen a lot of. No, not really. It might've just been Ditko's way of getting a 41 page story done on a deadline, but mm -hmm. it, it's extremely effective. Yeah, it really is. Um, and the whole issue really anticipates this sort of video game structure. The yeah, yeah. Boss fight, boss fight, boss fight, big boss. The story is really thin, but the action just carries us through it uh, all the way through. That's not to say that there isn't some strong story element here. Like, um, in the early part of the story, one of the subplots is Peter suddenly losing his Spidey powers. And the way this yeah. plays out is is actually, I thought, pretty well done. It's just after he returns home as Spider-Man. Um, he's looking through the window of his, his own house, and he sees Aunt May weeping over a picture of Uncle Ben through the window. This leads into a condensed retelling of Spidey's origin, where he's remembering that he could have stopped Uncle Ben's murderer before he killed Uncle Ben. He gets into some like near perilous problems yeah. yes. when he realizes his powers aren't there. Yeah, like he, he like he's on a roof. Yeah. And then he goes to like web swing off of it and realizes it's like, oh no, I don't have any powers. And it's like <laughs> he's clinging to a flagpole. So after Betty and Aunt May are kidnapped, um, Peter, even though he has no powers, uh, you know, they're calling out Spider-Man saying if yeah, if you don't show up, um, then that's it for these these ladies so he switches into the he changes into his outfit um and he goes out to confront electro even though he has no chance whatsoever right. as far as he has no power yeah he's just walked in his costume yeah with no power in front of electro yeah like that's just toast yeah and yeah. then he he manages to dodge one of electro's blasts uh and then he realizes like oh my powers are back um and then like after he defeats electro it kind of occurs to him, it's like, this is all a psychosomatic response to his grief and his guilt over Uncle Ben's murder, which is pretty sophisticated stuff for a comic book in yeah. 1964. Man. You know, like uh, that, I thought that that little nugget, because I couldn't remember why he didn't have powers. I, you know, I've read this before, mm -hmm. but this was like, I'm like, what caused this? Is there some kind of rate? Like I'm doing all kinds of weird is comic book logic <laughs> to try to figure out why his powers have disappeared. And then, when they say that, I'm like, oh, of course, of course, it's psychological. That's yep. like part, that's a main element that Ditko weaves into these stories. Yes. You know? Yeah. That internal life of yeah. the character. It's like yeah. Kafka. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very much. Um, one of my favorite re recurring bits of the entire story is how Aunt May just flat out refuses to believe that Doc Ock is a villain. <laughs> it's, it's played for laughs and it's, it's actually like really, really funny. So, Dr. Octopus has kidnapped her and Betty. He's holding them hostage. But May is just utterly charmed by Doc Ock. Uh, <laughs> when she first meets Doc Ock, she says, A doctor? How nice. Such a charming, soft-spoken gentleman. Um, and then uh, Betty tries to tell her Doc Ock is not to be trusted, and she responds, Now, now, dear, we mustn't be prejudiced against the poor man just because he seems to have some trouble with his arms. <laughs> Yeah, her she's so oblivious. It's oh. like a Mr. Magoo kind of thing. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and of course, after Spider-Man rescues them, so so that's Spider-Man, says Aunt May. What a perfectly ghastly outfit. He's so villainous looking. 
not at all as pleasant as that well-mannered Dr. Octopus. I'm sure Dr. Octopus would never have entered that way without knocking. Yeah. Yeah. Just, she, oh, man. Although although her biggest concern is that uh, (laughs) she's missed... The whole ordeal has caused her to miss the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's another. And that's the second. There's another mention of the Beverly Hillbillies, I think, with uh, Strange Tales with yeah. Ben and, and Johnny. I think you're right. It's like it definitely gets name checked twice. Yeah. The uh, Beatles get name checked. There's this thread of popular culture references that yep. I often think are uh, new to the Marvel Universe, but they've been there since the beginning. Yes, very much. Yep. Um, so yeah, overall, uh, this is, it's a super fun action packed story. It's clearly designed as a way to hook kids on Spider-Man and the rest of Marvel's lineup. Like I think at this point, Spider-Man is their most popular comic. This is the annual, you know, if they put, you know, six villains on the cover, um, you know, they're just like begging kids to pick this up. And, yeah. and once they got him, it's like, it's got guest appearances by practically every other Marvel character mentions of almost every other Marvel comic. It retells Spidey's origin. It has a ton of supplemental material about Spider-Man and his world. Um, and that last story about Stan and Steve, um, creating Spidey stories. I, it's like, it's a really good condensed illustration of like that Marvel sense of humor and establishing the creators as characters who you can get to know. Like, right. they're not just, you know, the guys who make these comics. They're your buddies. You know, yeah. here's their personalities. So. so self-deprecating. And yeah. yeah, which is a part of the, when when Stan's not being sensational, yes. he's being self-deprecating. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, very bipolar. <laughs> <laughs> So that wraps up all the comics. Uh, I think all that remains is for us just to talk about what our panels of the month are. Would you like to lead us off? Sure. Mine, weirdly, it's kind of unusual. It's a Kirby drawing, so it's not that unusual. (laughs) But it's Journey into Mystery. Uh, It is Journey into Mystery, number 109, page 5, panel 3. This is, um, uh, I I like to say this, uh, Kirby's delirious depiction of magnetic mayhem. <laughs> this is Magneto causing problems with his giant magnet. Yeah. Uh, so it's just normal people going about their business in New York, but there's like this floating convertible and somebody's looking out the side and there's a marquee sign flying by. And it's all these normal mundane things, elements of, of city life, but in this just thrown up in the air, crazy way to me that, that touches more like towards that Marvel's uh, idea of yeah. the, of the how this is affecting the real people in this yep. in the Marvel universe, and yep. so it, and it's just beautifully drawn. Of course, I'm looking at the panel right now, but even before you said exactly where it was, and before I brought it up, I knew exactly what you were talking about. Yeah. This one jumped out at me too. It was on my short list of pan. You will not be surprised to hear um, <laughs> that yep. I almost ganked that one from you. Um, but yeah, it, it's a it's a really vivid image. It's that world outside your window that you know that was the calling card of early Marvel comics. Okay, what do you got? Um, well, mine uh, comes from Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number One, um, page twenty-two, panel four. Um, so this is again going back to Aunt May just being relentlessly charmed by Doctor Octopus. It's when uh, Doc Ock uh, shows up 
to check in on Betty and Aunt May. <laughs> he's coming in with his metal arms, holding a teapot and a tray of danishes. Um, and he's just serving tea and pastries to Betty and Aunt <laughs> May, uh, it, it, who, of course, is absolutely incapable of seeing Doc Ock as anything other than a perfect gentleman. She's not at all focused on, you know, the weird, creepy robot arms uh, coming off of him, but just the fact that he's he's been so generous and thoughtful uh, that he's giving them uh, refreshments uh, while they're being detained. He does seem very thoughtful, though. Yeah. In, you know, in his defense, yeah. he's talking about being such a poor host and not getting them some refreshments yeah. and Danish pastries and whatever, you yeah. know? He's he's a charmer. Yeah. Well, great. Uh, that's uh, that's our show for this week. All that remains, I guess, is to say where you can find us uh, while you're waiting for the next episode to come out, and that would be at marvelbythemonth.com, uh, our forever home on the internet. <laughs> um, we're going to be uh, adding some stuff to that over the next few weeks. So uh, you know, poke in, see what we're doing. Um, we got some stuff in the works uh, that we're excited to announce um, in the very near future. And then uh, you can always follow us on uh, Instagram at Marvel by the Month and drop us an email, marvelbythemonth at gmail.com. I think that's it. That is it. All right. Well, until next week, uh, my name is Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. And we will see you next week for next month. <laughs>